0: was a gentile city dedicated to the god Artemis and when the gospel came and took hold in the hearts of people it threw the town into a riot people lost their minds because the gospel had come with power and they could not handle it, it started a riot things got out of hand the city mayor basically had to come in and settle down the crowd This may sound familiar, the last couple of months. uh, There is, there were real differences between Gentile world and the Jews. Not just in circumcision, but in actual fact, right? So, Paul, I think somewhat with some sarcastic tone, begins a section and says, You were called the uncircumcision by those who were the circumcision. Kind of giving some joviality to the ridiculousness of it, that you could be saved because you're circumcised. But then he says things that are actually true. He says, but you were separated from Christ. There is no doubt. You actually were not God's people. And you were separated from Christ in these ways. You were alienated from the commonwealth. You had no part in the fellowship of God's people, the pleasantness of their company. You had no part in that commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of grace, the covenants of promise. You did not know them. You did not understand them. They were not yours. You did not get the God of grace. You had no hope because of that, that you were just spinning your wheels, trying to Mollify whatever God you had, which at that time, in Ephesus would have been Artemis. And you were without God in the world. So Paul here kind of does a uh, tongue-in-cheek in in order to make the, the very real point. Yeah, they called you the uncircumcision and they were kind of mean about it. But here's the reality. You actually weren't part of God's people. You didn't have the promises. You didn't have the fellowship. You did not have hope. You did not have God. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near. So you had the Israel of the day, the Jews of the day. And they had been given real, actual ordinances by God. You'll notice here it says he, uh, Christ... Abolish the law and its ordinances. Now, this gets a little confusing because when you hear the law and abolish, we tend to think the law means like the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. Okay, but Christ, when He was here, so this is back at Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look it up, it's in Matthew five through seven. He said, "I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it." Anyone who lets even one jot or tittle be removed from the law is anathema, damned. So Christ did not come to say there is no more Ten Commandments. There is no more morality. What we're talking about here, and what Paul is very careful to say, is the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So in the Old Testament, there were three pieces of the law. Okay? There were the laws that pertain to the nation of Israel as a nation. So they had laws in the 630 or so commandments in the Old Testament that said, if you kill a man in this way, you're guilty of this type of murder. If a man dies in this way, you're guilty of manslaughter. This is how you decide between those two things. If you do this, you get this punishment. If you do this, you get this punishment. Those are... Civil laws. We still have them, right? We prayed about Indiana passing some civil laws. Those belonged to the nation of Israel as a nation. How they were to govern themselves as a people. They were based on God's moral law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not uh, lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. And the first four, right? Love, Lord, or... You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols or bow down to them. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and you shall keep the Sabbath holy. They were based on those moral laws, but they were a separate sort of thing. And we get what we get from those laws is something that we have termed general equity. So, the best example, I think, is something called the parapet law of the Old Testament. During that time, most of the houses that were made in that era had roofs on them that you would go up onto to cool down in the evening, get some breeze, that sort of thing. And Israel had a law that you had to put a fence up, a parapet, at the top of your house. And if you didn't have a fence and somebody fell off and broke their leg or killed, broke their neck and died, you were guilty because you didn't have the fence up. It was a civil law. We have brought that forward. Okay. If you read old law books like Blackstone Commentaries, they'll talk about this, right? Right, Brian? Am I right? The Blackstone stuff, yeah? I got, I got a... Yeah, that's pretty much right. <laughs> we draw general equity from that to make laws that we sometimes begrudgingly follow here. One of them being something like this. If you put a pool in your yard in most towns, including Jasper, what do you have to do? Put a fence around it. Why do you have to put a fence around it? So that some kid doesn't come wandering around and drown in your pool. It's a general equity law. They didn't have pools in the Old Testament. They had a roof. They needed a fence so you wouldn't fall off and break your leg. We have pools now and very few houses that have a roof you walk around on. So we have a law that's similar to. It's general equity. It's from that sort of law to our civil laws now. So that's one section. The civil laws of the nation of Israel. They're based on the moral laws. The second section is the priestly laws. Actually, let's do this the other way. The second section we'll call the moral law. Okay, The moral law are the Ten Commandments and everything connected to them. So the civil laws are connected but only outwardly in ordinances. The moral law, though, is absolute, final, unending. It will never be okay to murder. It was not okay in the beginning. It is not okay now. It will not be okay in the kingdom to come. It is a forever ordinance. A forever moral law. It has no end. We might figure out how to apply it differently. We might criminalize some things that are against it and not criminalize other things that are against it. But the moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, is a forever law of God. It continues on. And those are the things Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled all the moral law and all its moral implications. So moral implications. Those are things that are down to particulars. How we interpret the moral law. So... One of the things that Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees was how we interpret honor your father and mother. That was a command. That's right. It's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fast forward several thousand years. Jesus is walking around with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these guys are supposed to follow that moral law. Honor your father and mother. How are they supposed to do it? Well, one of the ways we determine how you're supposed to do it is by looking at how people are not doing it. And so Jesus said, You, Pharisees, are breaking the commandments. And they're like, what are you talking about? We keep all the commandments. He says, here's how you're breaking it. Instead of taking care of your elderly parents with your wealth, you're dedicating it to the temple and calling it Corbin, which means dedicated, basically. So that you don't actually have to do anything for your elderly parents. But you're looking holy because you gave a big gift to the the temple, to the tabernacle. You look like a good guy because you made a big contribution at the tent. But in reality, you're not following the moral law because you're not honoring your mother, mother and father. You're disgracing them. You're pretending like you don't have to do anything for them because you have given all your money away. Aren't you holy? Aren't you good? And and Jesus says to them, you broke the law. He applies the moral law in specific ways. We still do this. We have to figure out how the moral law in its summation applies specifically. Right? So our day and age, what's the big sin of the culture? Homosexuality. Transgenderism. Does the moral law apply to that? Yes. Yes. It applies in several ways, but most obviously in the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, how does that work? It's applied through Scripture in many different ways, but the reality is the commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, also implies you shall be chaste until you are married. That's implied in the moral commandment, and we see that all through Scripture. And so the moral law stays. The implications of the moral law have some room for interpretation, but not a lot, but they are permanent. So now we have the civil laws, which were for the nation of Israel, and we basically just learn how to govern from them. The moral law, which is permanent, and has many permanent features that are true no matter what, and then we try to apply it in different situations, trying to figure out how best to honor God's law. And then there's this third section of the law in the Old Testament. And it's a bunch of laws that we would call the priestly laws, the sacrificial laws, the clean, unclean laws. There were lots of laws in the Old Testament that say, you can eat this, but you can't eat that. If you do this, you're unclean for five days or seven days or a month. If you do this, that's how you become clean. You go wash in the river, you go do this ritual. Your house is unclean if it's got mold in it, unless it gets checked out by a priest, and then it becomes clean. You have all the laws regarding the sacrifice, right? When to sacrifice, what to sacrifice, who who to go to for your sacrifices, when to go, all this stuff. Those ordinances about the sacrifice, clean and unclean. That, Paul says, those ordinances are what you're fighting about. And here's the news... They were never the point anyway, because the grace of God was the point, even when the ordinances were the visible representation of religion. So even when the Jews were doing their sacrifices, the sacrifice wasn't the point. Faith in God for salvation was always the point. Grace given to people who were sinners was always the point. They outwardly expressed it by these things that God commanded them. And then Jesus came, and He is the new priest of the new temple, of the heavenly one, and it is a better one, and it is an abiding one. And He was the sacrifice once for all. And so all the things attached to the priestly order, all those laws, He abolished. They don't have anything to do with us anymore. So we do not have priests. We do not do a sacrifice We do not have clean and unclean laws. We have freedom in Christ in those ways completely. So what happened then? So let's not go there yet. So that's what's going on in Judaism, are these ordinances. Well, what happened over the thousands of years, the clean, unclean laws especially, became the thing. How do we prove that we are God's people? We're clean. They're dirty. We sacrifice to God. They don't. We do the right stuff. They do the wrong stuff. We do outwardly clean things. They do outwardly dirty things. Therefore, the whole of our religion is outward. It's in circumcision. It's in keeping the cup clean. It's in doing all of this. And God repeatedly in the Old Testament says, I desire obedience and faith... Not sacrifice over and over and over and over and over and over again. Your bulls and your goats are worthless if you have no faith. I don't care if you're keeping the ordinance. I care about your heart, the inward man. Do you believe? Do you have faith? But the people of God, slowly, over time, centuries and centuries, began to just be like, no, our religion is just the practice. It's just the stuff we do. It has nothing to do with faith. It's just actions. And then that led to this conflict that built over thousands of years between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew would go, you're gross and dirty. We're clean and nice. We hate you. You should act like us. And until you act like us, we want nothing to do with you. Forgetting that they were once unclean and had to be made clean. So this hostility had grown to the point where it was unbearable. The heat and hatred of arguments between the Jew and the Gentile were absolutely at a fever pitch. Hated one another. The Jews hated the Gentiles. It was not a nice, like, oh yeah, we don't eat there on Fridays. It was a, if you get a chance, throw a rock through their window kind of stuff. They were not nice. This hostility can only be dealt with in Christ. No outward forcing of behaviorism can fix that problem. Hostility will always remain. The government can come in and make a law and say, no, you're going to do it this way, and it doesn't matter. People will still hate each other. Hostility will still be there. It does not matter what outwardly happens. The hostility remains. We see this all over the world still, where we try to put arbitrary borders around people groups that hate each other and they still kill each other, even though we call them one nation. You can't force people to like each other. If they hate each other, they're gonna hate each other. Unless unless this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so by making peace. What has to happen for peace between warring people? Historically, what has to happen? What has happened? War. War is how you... Get peace? You don't like you. I don't like you. We're really mad. Boom. War. Somebody wins. And we try to force peace. And does that peace last? No, that peace doesn't last. It only lasts so long. And then all that hatred that still was there, despite the outward-looking peace stuff, bubbles to the surface, and war. Christ tore down the hostility in his body and made peace between warring factions. Not by having them battle each other, but by his flesh. He did the battle. There was a war. It had to be fought. It had to be won. But it couldn't be fought between the people themselves. It had to be fought by someone greater than them who could actually do something about it permanently. And that permanence is the grace of God given to believers so that they can be at peace with one another. But their most crucial part of that is they have to be at peace with God. They have to be made partakers of the covenants of promise. They have to be brought near to God. Until that point, until people are near to God, no amount of peacemaking will work. Even though I talk a lot about politics, what's going on at the Statehouse, the reality is this. Unless people repent and believe the gospel here in our state, community, across the entire United States, there will be no peace. There will be no peace. We are fools if we think a law brings peace. Laws do not bring peace. Laws punish lawbreakers. The laws are there to try to maintain civility, not to make peace. God is the only one who can do it. And here is the modern day problem, conundrum that we face. The church also has been given ordinances by God. Things that we do that belong to us and not to anybody else. We have the fellowship wrought by the Spirit. We have the preaching of the Gospel, the teaching of the Apostles. We have prayer. We have giving. We have what looks like, outwardly, a moral religion. It's just about doing things. And so over the course of several thousand years now, Christians have forgotten that the outward doing of the law is not what saves us. We were not brought near to God to pretend like we know anything. We were brought near to God to proclaim the grace that brought us near. But instead, the church as a whole, individually, corporately, as denominations, as individual churches, we have forgotten that. We forget it quickly. We begin to think that the most important thing is to act like a Christian. To look clean on the outside, and if you look clean enough, then you can come sit in the pews and you won't be a problem. But if you're kind of dirty and you're kind of behaviorally messed up, we don't really want to take the time to deal with that in the church. That's for the social workers to do. That's for the you know that's for the Dove Recovery Center for women that's starting in about two months. It's uh, a drug recovery place over on 15th Street by Kimball. That's what they do over there is they take care of recovering drug addicts. Church has no place for that. That's, that's dirty. And we care about, like, outward appearance stuff. We care about you being able to sit in the pew without, like, you know, doing any number of bad things. It happens even when you have families, right? So a common difficulty in growing churches... Um, is that families who have had no practice with their children in the pew can't keep their kids still in the pew? And we think, well, they need to get their act together and start keeping their kids still in the pew. And until they can keep their kids still in the pew, we don't want them here. Forgetting that the whole point is that they need to be brought near to God in the promises, the grace of God. And instead, we get hostile. We don't want gross people in the pews. We want clean people in the pews. We want nice people in the pews. The nice people, if they get saved, it's pretty easy. They just kind of clean up a little bit more, and then we're done. Forgetting that all of us are dirty messes, whether we were near or far. And this is how we know. Because here is where the pride kicks in. Right? The Ephesians who were Gentiles, they were the far off ones, they were the messed up ones. They were the idolaters. They were the ones going to the temple of Artemis. They were the ones buying the silversmith statues. They were the gross ones. They were the debauched ones. They were having, you know, crazy sex parties. This was Rome. Right. And so they can they start to be prideful and you know that sort of thing. And the Jews are like, Listen, we we didn't need any of that cleaning up. We were already clean. Remember we had the ordinances we were already doing the stuff but this is what God says so that you might reconcile us both to God in one body by the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off we're like of course those people need peace you know they're the gross ones and then Paul turns the tables He's like, he didn't just come to bring peace to those who are far off. He came to preach peace to those who were near. Outwardly clean. Outwardly okay. Nothing too awful to be dealing with outwardly. The Jews, even at the time of Jesus, were a clean people. Outwardly, they weren't Disobedient disruptors. There was a faction that caused problems for Rome, right? The zealots. But for the most part, they were obedient citizens. They paid their taxes even though they were extorted. They walked nicely. They kept nice houses. They, they're just nice people, you know? And we can think, well, they don't need to be brought near. They already are near. And God says, They needed the same peace that those who were far off needed, and that is peace with God. Peace with God. It does not matter how outwardly clean we are. If we do not have peace with God, none of it matters, and we will never, ever have any success being non-hostile to those we despise. But, if we are brought near by the peace of God, and made peace with Him through Christ, We have, this is verse 18, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both have access to the Father. What Father? The Father. The only Father. The Father from whom all fatherhood gets His name. We're not some of this guy and some of that guy. Those who are far off and those who are near, we all get the same Father. And so what happens in the church over time... And it doesn't matter what church it is. This is the heart of man. This is the sin common to men. We begin to think of ourselves as having cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves presentable. Rather than, even though we were outwardly presentable, we still had a major problem, and that was peace with God that needed to be reconciled. And it can only be reconciled through the sacrifice of Christ. And if we keep that in mind, we'll realize that even though outwardly we may be very different, you know, the drug addict who's been on the streets looks different than most of you. This has been a very big thing that has happened to me in the last decade of my life. Is I have begun thinking back on my childhood. And it's been difficult in a lot of ways. And the book that started it for me, really, was a book called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. I talked about this several weeks ago, I think. The reason it started it in full steam, I think, is because J.D. Vance wrote about my family. I mean, you could have just taken page after page, and it was just like the stuff I grew up with. Hearing, knowing, thinking. And so it's been weird for me to think about my cousins and aunts and uncles who are far off, not part of the commonwealth, don't know the promises, and live in ways that I could not imagine. It's very difficult because I love my family. I think, what happened? Why am I not like that? Is it because I'm more moral than them, cleaner than them? Is it because sometimes I shave my cheeks and my neck? Is it because because my cousins don't, (laughs) and I forget most of the time? Is it because I wear dress pants on Sunday? Is it because I went to college? Flunked out, but I did go. Well, I I was enrolled. We'll put it that way. I didn't go to class, but I was enrolled in college. Trying to be honest about what happened there. Is it because of that? Is it because I was good, a good student? I got straight A's. Is that the difference? Is it because I was good at music? I went to music school. I was an arts guy. Is it because I played football? I wasn't very good, but I did play. Is it because I was a big tipper? I used to be very proud of my tipping. I used to tell people about it. And how much I tip. You know. It's because of that. No, it's not because of any of that. Outwardly speaking, you could have looked at my, many of my family members and me and thought, you are different. Because of actions. But the reality is, many of my relatives, though they look differently than me, or just as generous, are the sorts of people who would absolutely not just give you the shirt off their back, but give you their bed, give you their house, hand you their keys, give you a tank of gas, and send you down the road and walk home themselves. They are that kind of people. All of them. they generous in ways that's hard to imagine. Family members who have taken in unwanted children from destitute families and adopted them as their own. Unbelieving, without Christ. No, no, what happened was a few years before I was born, my dad was reborn. And then my dad married my mom, who was also reborn. The grace of God came to my family. We did not do anything to deserve it. It wasn't because my dad went to college and none of his siblings did. It wasn't because my dad was a businessman and none of his brothers are. It wasn't because my dad was well respected in my hometown. It wasn't because my dad was a councilman. It wasn't because he was in a lion's club or a shriner. It wasn't because of any of that. God brought us near. That is the only difference. Outwardly, we looked different before that ever happened. My dad looked different than his siblings years before he became a Christian. Years. He wore a suit and tie to work. None of his brothers probably own a suit and tie. He looked different, but he was not a Christian. He didn't know the promises of God. He didn't have hope in this world. He did not know God. And then, and then... He did. Not because of works, because God is gracious. There is no ability that you have or I have or anyone else has to work themselves in the kingdom of God. No amount of keeping the outward appearance of church will ever save you. You could come every Sunday for your entire life from A week after birth until you die, not miss a single Sunday. You could take every single sacrament there is. You could be baptized properly. You could sing all the songs. You could have them all memorized. And if you have not been brought near by God through Jesus Christ to His peace and know Him as as your Father, you don't know God. And if you do know God, You ought not to expect someone who doesn't to look like you. They don't know God. Of course, they're not going to look like you. And even if they do look kind of like you, they have no idea what the promises are. They have no idea what hope is. They do not know God. They are without hope, they are without promises, they are without the fellowship. They don't have any of it. This hostility between classes, between those in the church and those out of the church, continues and has continued. And is still a sin that we struggle with. We don't want dirty people in the pews until they've cleaned up a little bit. Maybe the church down the road who has the crack addict, you know, AA Anonymous program, maybe they get all the weirdos and once they've been unweirded, then they can come join our church, you know, they've been a few years clean, all right, that church deals with the dirty people and once they've been cleaned up a bit, we can take them. That's how most people think about church. That's the church that deals with the gross people and then there's like a stepping stone church this way and then there's our church. Ain't we nice? We are not a stepping stone church. We want the dirtiest of the dirty and the cleanest of the clean because both of them need to be brought near to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the broken walls of hostility. And God, through Jesus Christ, has done it in a way that we could never, ever hope to do it. No amount of morality No amount of niceness, no amount of behaviorism could do this. I don't know how many of you know very many social workers. I've known a few. There are some social workers who do not end up being like this, but most social workers end up despising the people they work with because they don't change, they don't get better, they still abandon their kids they still do drugs they're a little bit better at bad at better at it they're a little bit better at lying about it but lots of people just don't change and social workers get burned out on it It burns them up you know here i am investing years of my life in this person and here they are just completely destroying themselves it's hard it's hard there's no place to do it outside the church by the power of the Spirit. Social workers will not win the world. They won't clean up the world. The only people who have any hope of making the world a better place are Christians who believe these things. We are the hope of the world because we know the peace of God. And He is the only one who can help us and help them. Spending our time not doing that is not good. And so what do we need to do then as we close? We need to give ourselves to knowing the depth and the width and the breadth of the grace of God. Do you know yourself? Do you know how desperately you need the God of all grace? Not just, I used to kind of be a bad person, and I guess I needed the grace of God then. Right now, how desperate you are for yourself to be near to God. That if you were given to yourself, even now, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you'd walk away. That your sins would consume you because you don't have the power this is who has the power. for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The Spirit has the power, and we have access to the Spirit if we have been brought near. and that in and of itself is the grace of God. Nothing else, nothing, nothing, nothing less the grace of God. We have to know it. We have to know ourselves. And how deep our real need is. And that knowing. That we were once far off. And have been brought near. No matter how near we were to start. No matter how close to grace we were. It doesn't matter if we can trace our Christian lineage back a hundred generations. We individually had to be brought near. We had to be made peace with God. And if we get that. Then this. All these problems we have between us and them, God has taken care of. He will make it work. We'll be able to live with completely different people than us. Totally different. In no ways like us, who think differently, act differently, talk differently. And the point won't be to make them think, talk, and act like us. It will make them think, talk, and act like Jesus Christ because they've been bought by the blood and brought near by the grace of God. This is our hope and this is their hope. Let's stand this morning and we will pray and then we will sing. Father, it is, a, it, is a, it is too big of a thing for us to grasp how deep and wide the, Your grace is to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see it. Open the eyes of our hearts to this. Let us know ourselves and know the great need that we were in no matter how close we were. And let us love those who are far off, devoid of the promises, who do not know You, And let us preach to them the same grace that we know. That there is one who made peace by his body and it is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Give us this mentality. Give us this hope. Give us this dedication. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Spirit you have given us. Amen. We're going to end with number 772. When we all... All get to heaven.
1: Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace in the mansions bright and blessed. He'll prepare for us a place When we all get to heaven What a day of rejoicing that will be When we all see Jesus We'll sing and shout the victory While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. When we all get to heaven, What a day of rejoicing that will be When we all see Jesus We'll sing and shout the victory Let us then be true and faithful Trusting, serving every day Just one glimpse of Him in glory Will the toils of life repay When we all get to heaven What a day of rejoicing that will be When we all see Jesus we'll sing and shout the victory onward to the prize before us soon his beauty will behold soon the pearly gates will open we shall tread the streets of gold When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory.
0: And now may the God of peace